we are about to do something weird. Most of our lives, in the way that we currently live them, we are constantly receiving fresh, new, a couple decades ago, we would say hot off the presses, news and information. You could pull out your phone right now and you could see what somebody wrote seconds ago on the other side of the world. But what we're about to do is we're going to open up a book that is nearly 2,000 years old and we're going to carefully read a short passage of it and try to figure out what God is telling us in it and why it matters in our life. That is probably not something that most people do in America on a regular basis. We're going to do that this morning. Let's pray and ask God for help. Father, we come as your people and we submit ourselves to your word this morning. We thank you that you worked through the inspiration of the Spirit, through the writing of Paul almost 2,000 years ago, to provide for us the book of Ephesians as a gift now. Lord, we pray that you would use this book in these 14 verses this morning, that you would use them to shape us, to mold us as individuals and as families and as a church more into the image of your Son. Lord, we give you this time, we offer you our hearts and our minds and our lives, and we ask that you would shape us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. This morning, we're going to start into a new summer series on the book of Ephesians in the New Testament of the Bible. It's six short chapters long. It's going to take us the whole summer to go through it. Sometimes we'll go fast, sometimes we'll go slow, but we will dig in and find out what it is that God has put in this book that are riches and gifts to us today. We've been working through the book of Acts. We got to a natural stopping point at the end of chapter 12 last week. Starting in chapter 13, if Lord willing, we get back to that in the fall, we will see a new section of Acts that's focused on the Apostle Paul and his missionary journeys. So we had a, a natural breaking point, and now we're going to read a letter written by Paul to one of the churches that he helped found on one of those missionary journeys. So we're kind of inserting ourselves into the middle of the story in order to catch up with this book. The series is going to feel a little bit more like a class. Now, those of you young people who just got out of school, you're like, oh, no, not a class, right? Well, what I mean by that is I'm going to give you a little bit of homework, and we're going to have a little bit of interaction on most Sundays. This is on purpose, and the, the reason for that purpose is actually found in chapter 4 of Ephesians. We'll get there eventually. Right now, I'd like you to look in your bulletin, and you'll find a couple inserts. One is a blue piece of cardstock. The top, it says Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, ESV, memory. This is the homework. We are going to memorize these 10 verses this summer as we go through the book of Ephesians. I would say that these 10 verses represent the core, the heart of the book of Ephesians. Now, you look at that and you think, how in the world am I going to memorize all of that? Well, wait until you start reading it and realize, well, the wording is actually pretty hard in some places. Then it's going to feel like even more of a challenge. But we're going to work on it. We're going to do a little bit at a time. I encourage you as individuals, as married couples, as families to work on this together. So if you sit down for dinner together, um, pull this out, work on a verse or half a, half a verse a little bit at a time with the kids, with the grandkids, and eventually, hopefully, we'll all have the first 10 verses of Ephesians memorized. This week, what I'd like you to do is kind of get off to a fast start and try to do the first two verses of Ephesians 2. They say this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's it. You can do that this week, right? Then we'll add to it next week with verse 3. So take it home, stick it on the fridge, stick it on the kitchen table, interact with it. For me, I put a, a note in my phone so that I can pull it out. And as I'm walking along trying to remember it, and I can't remember, is it this word or is it this word? I just pull it, pull it out real quick and look at it. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. The other insert is also a passage from Ephesians. It's on regular paper. This is the passage we're doing today. I, I would love for all of you every Sunday to bring your own Bible. And if you're comfortable, I'd love for you to mark up your Bible. So bring a pencil or a real fine tip pen 
underline things, write little notes, circle things, draw lines for connections. Recognizing that some of you didn't bring your own Bible, I printed this out for you this time so that you've got something in front of you that you can hold in your hands that you can mark up as we go through this passage. I'd like you to bring, even if you bring your own Bible, I'd encourage you to bring this back next week because next week we're actually going to do the same 14 verses. There are two main points. This week we're going to look at one main point. Next week we're going to look at the second main point. So we'll use this same passage next week. All right. Why Ephesians? Why do this for the summer? Part of the reason is that Scioto Hills Camp, where many of us are going to spend a week this summer, is working through the book of Ephesians as part of their camp ministry this summer. So we get to double up, and that's a great bonus. But honestly, I've wanted to do the book of Ephesians with you guys for a long time. I love the book of Ephesians. And when I found out that camp was doing it, that's all I needed to push me over the edge to do it this summer with you guys. Ephesians is a rich, rich book. There's lots of deep theological truth in there, but there's also lots of very hands-on, practical, so what, how are we supposed to live our lives on this? And Paul has arranged this really into first half and second half. Chapters 1 through 3, deep theological truth. What should we know? What should we believe? What should we think? Chapters 4, 5, and 6, how then should we live? That's the basic outline. I've summarized this the title for our sermon series as Reconciled for Life. The first three chapters focus on reconciliation, both vertical reconciliation with God and horizontal reconciliation with each other. Now, if you guys have been around this church for a while, you have heard me say over and over again those words, the idea of vertical relationship with God and horizontal relationship with each other. I didn't just make that up. You find that throughout the New Testament, even though they don't use the words vertical and horizontal. The idea of being reconciled is the idea of having peace being made between two formerly opposed parties. People that were at odds with each other, now at peace with each other. Now, as humans, we all know what it's like to have broken relationships. Every one of us in this room has experienced the pain of broken relationships. Maybe our parents split up. Maybe a a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse broke your heart. Maybe a friend betrayed you. Maybe you've just been a victim of a mess of other people and, and it hurts. Maybe a sibling hates your guts and doesn't want anything to do with you. These are all terrible and gut wrenching situations, but they're all symptoms of a bigger, more fundamental problem. All of our broken horizontal relationships stem from a broken vertical relationship between humans and God. I would say at this, all broken horizontal relations, relationships stem from our broken vertical relationship with God. I encourage you to write that down. That is something that if you understand in life, Things will make a whole lot more sense. All broken horizontal relationships stem from our broken vertical relationship with God. Now, if we go back to the very beginning, back to the, the beginning of the Bible and the beginning of history, we see how this played out. We see that when Adam and Eve, our first parents, when they rebelled against God, when they ate from the forbidden tree, they disobeyed God. The result of that first sin was an immediate breaking of relationship, first vertically, then horizontally. So immediately after they sin, they feel this shame and this guilt, and they they want to cover themselves. And when God comes looking for them to to be with them, they they try to hide from God, which is comical, right? But they, they try to hide from God because their vertical relationship with him has been broken. They knew it immediately. They felt it in their gut. But the next result of that broken vertical relationship is broken horizontal relationship because when God comes and confronts them in their sin and he says to Adam, he said, Adam, what have you done? Not because God doesn't know, but because he needs Adam to say it to him, to confess it. Adam responds by blaming Eve. 
We see this in Genesis 3.12. The man said, the woman whom you gave, so he's blaming God too, you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. This has been the, the trap that humanity has been in since that moment. Broken vertical relationship, broken horizontal relationships, the broken horizontal are the results of the broken vertical. Every single one of us has in our hearts a longing for this to be fixed, a longing for reconciliation. You each probably have somebody in your life right now that you wish you could have a reconciled, a fixed relationship with. Maybe the, you got the picture of that person's face in your head right now. And maybe you have no hope that that'll actually happen, and it would take some kind of a miracle. But you know what that longing feels like. That longing is there on purpose. Because we were designed from the beginning for perfect, loving relationships with each other and with God our Father. And so when those relationships are broken, of course that hole produces in us a longing. The song that we just sang ends with the, the phrase of God, the three in one. That's a reference to the Trinitarian nature of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one, three persons, still one God, and that they're in perfect relationship with each other. And then when God makes man, humans, in his image, he makes us as relational beings. And so because we are made in the nature of God, when our relationships are broken, we long for reconciliation. The first three chapters of Ephesians are going to point us towards that reconciliation. Now, some of you might be here today saying, well, I agree with this broken relationship part, but I'm not buying the reconciliation part. This, this world sucks. It has broken my heart so many times. I cannot believe again that there is hope of reconciliation. My years of pain have taught me the pain is a reality, and reconciliation is a myth. Well, if that's you this morning, then friend, I pray that God will work in your heart and your mind in this series, and that this morning will be something of a first aid for you. That maybe, maybe you won't be completely convinced of the possibility of reconciliation with God and with each other, but at least maybe we'll stop some of the bleeding, and we'll get your heart rate under control. And you're breathing under control. And then maybe, as we go through Ephesians, you'll be able to see the reality of this possible reconciliation. Like I said, Ephesians is broken into two halves. First half is the theological half. What should we believe? The second half is the practical half. What should we do? Today, we're going to start into the first half with just the first 14 verses. I'll warn you, there's some complicated stuff in here. We're going to go through it a couple times. Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. I want to read the whole thing to you, and then we're going to work through a little bit at a time. So, if you would please, either grab your Bible, or grab that insert, or grab a pew Bible on page 976, you'll find it. And then if you would, in honor of the Word of God, would you please stand as I read through all first 14 verses of Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will 
so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. All right, please have a seat. I know that if that, particularly if that's not familiar with to you, that that was probably pretty overwhelming. Amazingly, uh, verses one and two stand by themselves in the original Greek language, and then verses three through fourteen, the rest of that is one single long, complicated but beautifully constructed sentence in the Greek. Now, we break it up into multiple sentences in English to help us understand it. But man, when Paul gets going with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, he just writes this huge, long 3 through 14 as one complete thought. Now, as I read through that, you probably recognized a few things. There's a reason that we sang the song, Come Praise and Glorify, right before we read this. There are some themes, there are some words that are in that song that are repeated in here. There are some things that are repeated in these 14 verses a couple times to point us to the main ideas. What we're going to do now is pause for a minute and give you a chance to share with someone near you what you saw as something that was either really important in those 14 verses or something that you saw as a theme or a pattern that was repeated. Now, if you're joining us with the live stream, this is going to be weird, but if you show up in person, then it's not quite so weird. So take a minute, turn to somebody near you, if you don't know their name, introduce yourself, and just say, here's the, here's the most important thing I saw in this, or here's the pattern or the repeating that I saw in this. Take a minute and go for it. All right, I'll give you 10 seconds to finish up your conversation. All right, we're going to go through it a little bit at a time now. First, we need a map to get ourselves oriented. So the city of Ephesus, in what we would call modern uh, Turkey, was in the province or the region of Asia Minor. Turkey's been in the news a lot recently with the whole war in Ukraine thing. Turkey is a member of NATO, and Finland and Sweden want to join NATO, and Turkey has said, no way, we're not going to allow it to happen. They're blocking that. So uh, pretty important region of the world 2,000 years ago and is important even today. The city of Ephesus was a very important city. It was a port city and lots of commerce and trade, business going in and out, but it was also a a religious center for the region. Particularly among, there are lots of gods and goddesses in the pagan world that were worshipped there, but Ephesus was mostly about the worship of the goddess Artemis, or Diana. She was the goddess of the hunt in mythology. She was the goddess of the moon. And at least in Ephesus, she was considered a fertility or a mother goddess. Now, if, you, if you're taking notes, write Acts 19 on your notes. Read Acts 19 this week. It's the story of Paul first arriving to the city of Ephesus and what took place there. Very interesting story. He gets caught up in this giant riot in the city where the, the worshipers and the people whose profession are linked to the worship of this false goddess Artemis 
They get all worked up so that for two hours straight, this mob screams at the top of their lungs, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, over and over and over again for two hours straight. You can find that story in the book of Acts chapter 19. Paul's writing this book of Ephesians as a letter to the church in Ephesus. He's writing from Rome. Specifically, he's writing from prison in Rome. Paul spent a lot of time in various prisons, but that didn't stop his gospel ministry. He's in prison for preaching, for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, but he continues to preach and proclaim the gospel of Christ even from prison by sending letters out like this one back to churches that he helped found like the church in Ephesus. It would be delivered to Ephesus probably by boat and then get passed around the region. Copies would be made. Many churches would be able to read it and be built up by this letter written by our man Paul. All right. Verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So how does Paul identify himself? He identifies himself as an apostle. There are very few apostles in the New Testament. Lots of disciples, lots of followers of Jesus, but very few apostles. Jesus himself chose the 12 disciples, which means learners or followers. Then he called them apostles later, which means sent out ones. He sent them out on mission. Judas betrayed him. He's replaced with Matthias. Then in Acts, we get a few more, not many, just a few more men added to this special group of apostles, Paul being the most important one that is added. He's a leader in the church. He has authority. He has seen the risen Christ. One of the prerequisites of being an apostle is he actually had to have been with Jesus after the resurrection. And so he writes, he says, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus. I have authority. What I am writing to you is not just my opinion. He's writing to the saints. We looked the last few weeks, we said the saints are not super Christians. They're not uh, dead people that we have relics of, that we pray to. We don't do that. The saints are the regular Christians. He's writing to everybody in the region of Ephesus who has been saved by Jesus, and he calls them saints. Well, how can this apostle claim to be writing to these saints with any kind of authority? It's right in the middle there. By the will of God. How did Paul become an apostle? How does he have the authority to write to them? It's by the will of God, by the choice of God. I hope some of you guys saw that as one of the themes in these first 14 verses. The overriding will and choice of God. He extends a blessing to them, basically saying grace and peace to you. Now, he's not a dispenser of grace and peace. He doesn't have a bucket of grace and peace that he pours out on them. He's essentially voicing a prayer. May God grant you more grace, grant you more peace. God is the source of that grace and peace. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So three times in that verse, we get a variance on the word bless. We're told that Uh, Who is blessed? God is blessed. Who else is blessed? We are blessed. Those are two different things. When we talk about God as blessed, we're really thinking of him as the blessed one, as the worthy one, as the, the wonderful, the truly wonderful one. He is the blessed one. The second idea is that we have been blessed by God, the blessed one. And then the last one references here the idea that it's spiritual blessings not physical blessings. Paul is not concerned with what kind of car you're driving, how great your house is, how big your bank account is, how your health is. He's not, he's not pointing to any of that in this. He's talking about spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms. You can be the most physically blessed person in the world. And if you don't have true spiritual blessing... You've got nothing that will last. It's all going to burn up. It's all going to go away. 
So Paul's like, I don't even care about that other stuff right now. Let's just talk about the spiritual blessings, the things that are going to last. And he's going to outline for us what he means by that as he goes through the book of Ephesians. The next part starts into the theological argument section. And this 4, 5, and 6 is a complicated little set. It's going to take us a little bit of time to work through it. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Now, those three sentences aren't the whole giant, complicated system sentence, but they definitely are a lot to swallow for us, especially if you're not particularly comfortable with this. What has, what has happened in here? What has God done for us? Let's go back. Let's read it again. Be careful. Let's look at things as we go through. Verse 4, even as he chose. Okay, So whose choice are we talking about? We're talking about God's choice. He chose us in him when? Before the foundations of the world. All right, so if we're talking about God choosing you and saving you, adopting, as we'd see later here, as a son into his family, it's his choice, and he made that choice before the foundations of the world. All right, now, some of you, that might be short, not your brain. How can this be? Is Paul actually saying that before God created anything, before Adam and Eve were made and had a chance to fall and all that took place after that, that God actually chose some people for salvation even before they existed? That is exactly what Paul is saying. Depending on your theological background, you might think, that is the best news in the world. Or you might be thinking, I don't like this. I don't like this at all. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. Now that's not just talking about once we're in heaven and we're holy and blameless. That's talking about here on earth. What's your purpose in life now? If Jesus has saved you, it's not just to Live whatever life you want and hope you get welcomed into heaven at the end. It's to live now for the purpose of being holy and blameless. That's why you are still alive if you are saved in Christ. In love, okay, you believe that God loves you? Do believe, you believe that he works in all things in all of history, that he's motivated by love, even in his choosing? In love, he predestined, is that idea of his choice again. Paul is saying that motivated by love, God determined beforehand the destiny of people. Now, that doesn't sit well with us as Americans, right? Nobody determines my destiny. I am my own man. I will do, I will make my life however I want it to be. Paul is saying that is not reality. I know that makes for a good movie. It makes for a good children's story, right? Every single Western in the history of America is that basic story. Self-made man, I'm going to conquer, right? And yet Paul is saying here, God has predestined, in love, has predestined, has chosen our destiny beforehand for what? for adoption to himself as sons. Now, ladies, you're not being left out. In the ancient world particularly, you just get grouped together, all of mankind, but especially in this sense, because Paul is writing this legal idea of adoption, and especially in Galatians and Romans, he would say we are sons, we are heirs. Well, in order for that to make sense in the greater Roman world, he's using just the son version of that. But ladies, you are definitely included. Adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, if Christ has saved you, you are not just reluctantly welcomed into the kingdom as a servant, a slave. You are welcomed in as a beloved 
adopted son. Just like in our regular world, adoption is the choice of the parents. It is God's choice, not our choice. Going on. Why is this happening? What's the plan? It's according to the purpose of his will. So it's not our will. It's not our plan. Some of you may think, man, but I want my plan. I want my will. I hope by the end of this you see resting in God's will, in God's plan, is far better than insisting on our plan. This is all according to the purpose of his will, will to the praise of his glorious grace. Song should be going through your head at this point. To the praise of his glorious grace. This is all about him. He deserves the glory. It is his grace that is glorious, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now notice the ESV translators have, to, have chosen to capitalize that last word, beloved. There's no capitalization or lowercase in Greek. This is an editorial choice on their part because they rightly understand and need to communicate to us that this last word, the beloved, is a person. It's a who. It's a divine who. Jesus himself. That all of these things that we just read and the will and the purpose and the adoption and all of that stuff is the blessing of us in Jesus, in the beloved. We're going to look at that in more detail next week as we talk about what it means to be in Christ, go through these same verses. So if you've been forgiven of your sins, you've been saved by hell, you've been adopted into the family of God, who accomplished that? It was not you. It was God doing it on your behalf. He chose you. He wants you to be holy and blameless before him. He's adopted you into his family. It's all about him. And before the foundation of the world, that plan was set in place. And he is bringing it about. But what about your choice? What about your choice to repent and believe? Would you hear me say those words over and over again? The gospel message is that Christ has died for you. He's taken your sin upon himself. He's risen from the dead to conquer sin in the grave. He calls you to life in him, to forgiveness, to salvation. Our response to that is repentance and faith. What about our choice for that? Well, as we read the book of Ephesians, we'll see that our choice is minuscule compared to God's choice. That we don't even have a choice unless he first exercises his choice to choose us. Let's go to verse 7. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. This is the amazing news of the gospel summarized in this two verse. In Christ, we have redemption. We are reconciled to God the Father in Christ through what? Through his blood, through Jesus' blood. Jesus dying on our behalf is what makes it possible for us rebellious sinners that we are to be reconciled to God and be adopted into the family of God. Without the death of Jesus on our behalf, we are hopeless. We are lost for all eternity. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. That, that phrase, that, that word of trespasses is going to show up a couple times in your memory passage in chapter 2, but here it's talking about forgiveness of our trespasses, forgiveness of our sins, not according to what we have done, not according to our performance. Now, if you've got a rotten performance in life, like you've been a rebel, you have been a complete loser when it comes to following the law of God, then this is great news. You're like, thank you, Lord. It's not according to my performance. If you have been like Paul was before his conversion, pretty proud of yourself, like I'm a pretty good person, I've been doing this church thing really well, then this might 
make you a little bummed. If you were hoping that you would be accepted by God because you're better than all the other losers around you, then when it says here, according to the riches of his grace, instead of saying according to your performance, you might feel a little bummed. If that is your response, then there should be this giant warning siren going off in your head telling you that you do not belong to Christ. It is the lowly, it is the meek, it is the losers of this world who recognize that they need Jesus, that it is only through the sacrificial death of Jesus, his blood, as this verse says, that we have any hope of salvation. Even our best efforts are nothing. And if we were judged by our best efforts, we would be lost. But we're not judged by those, ultimately. We are judged instead according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. He reluctantly shared with us or gave us a little bit of. Maybe grandparents in the room, maybe you've got grandkids that when they come over, they know that there's this particular jar of candy or some pennies or something. And if they ask you, you'll give them a little bit of whatever that treat is. That is not the picture here. This is just taking the giant bucket of candy and pouring it over the head of the kid, lavishing it on the kid. Now, we wouldn't do that, the candy, unless you're one of those grandparents that drives me nuts, and you might do that. But according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, how can we go from being enemies of God to not only like reluctantly sort of accepted by God if we perform well, but to be lavished with God's grace. That his love is lavished, poured out on us beyond measure. How did that happen? How is that possible? It is through the death of Jesus alone. And he ends this section here. In all wisdom and insight. God is not ignorant of our sin and of our lostness. And he's not dismissive of it. He doesn't say, well, they just didn't know any better and they kind of did okay and, well, they got a really cute smile and just tugging on my heart and so I, I guess I'll accept. God doesn't do that at all. He's, he's not fallen for any of that foolishness. He is doing this intentionally in wisdom and insight. He understands. He sees clearly. And even though he sees clearly, he chooses to love us. Amazing. Verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now we're going to spend a lot of time on those couple verses next week as we talk about being in Christ. But for now, just notice that in, in 9 here, in 9 and 10, it talks about the mystery of his will and his purpose that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is about him. We are just bit players on the stage that is playing out this amazing drama about God and his glory. Verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Again, see how God-centric, centered on God, these words are. Yes, he's talking about that we have obtained an inheritance, that we have been predestined, that we're adopted into the family of God, but all of that... The we stuff is really secondary to the God stuff. It is primarily about God. But what do we do? How do we respond to this? It's all about God. Well, it's, it's in there. We hope in Christ. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, we hope in him. We don't hope in our own goodness. We don't 
hope that we won the spiritual lottery. We don't hope that we can like, earn our way into acceptance with God. Instead, we hope in Christ. We decide not to hope in ourselves. That's repentance. And we decide to hope only in Christ. That is faith. What's the result of this? It's our song again. To the praise of his glory. Our hope, our salvation, is more about the praise of his glory than it is about our salvation. Verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Our song again. So verse 13 gives us another little bit of the role that we play here. What do we do? We hear the word of truth. We hear the gospel message. If you read the book of Romans, Paul's really clear that in order for someone to be saved, they have to hear the gospel message. And he goes through this great chain of, well, you got to, in order to, to hear it, you got to have somebody that preaches it. In order to have somebody that preaches it, you got to have somebody that is sent out. Why do we support missionaries? Why do we ourselves ask for God to provide evangelistic conversations in our lives? Because people need to hear the gospel of Jesus. I've got an interesting update from one of our missionary families this last week. Uh, Aaron and Mela Stocks, who serve in Alaska. Aaron is a missionary pilot and repairman up there. They serve communities that are disconnected. There are no roads. And so air travel is basically the only way in, except in the middle of winter, when you can use sled dogs to get in. There's a missionary that they help support who's been serving in a remote village for years, who has just been diagnosed with ALS. And he's choosing to stay as a missionary, suffer through this illness, but love the people that God has called him to. And so this week, uh, Aaron and a team got to fly a whole bunch of supplies, because there's no Home Depot in the middle of Alaska, got to fly a whole bunch of supplies to there and build this uh, elaborate deck and wheelchair ramp to get into their trailer so that this guy can continue to serve, continue to proclaim the word of God to the people that he loves and that need to hear it in the middle of Alaska. This same week, or maybe it was the week before, Aaron and his wife, Mela, and their kids got to participate in something that's been an answer to prayer, a long-standing prayer. A particular village completely closed to the witness of Christ, wants nothing to do with missionaries or outsiders in general. God has been slowly working in those people, softening them, building relationships. Uh, one of the ways we support Aaron and Mela financially, and some of that money gets used to, to fill these giant bins with food and supplies to take to this village as Christmas gifts to be a blessing to them and to try to soften their hearts. Their village is so remote, things are so expensive that when we give a little bit here, it gets translated into supplies sent to them that are a huge blessing. Uh, they sent pictures back of the, the, sh the shelves at their local store in this little village and a, a can of Crisco with a price tag underneath that says $34.99. <laughs> Can you imagine trying to feed your family in a place like that? A half-gallon uh, carton of boxed milk, five dollars. Right. So, these gifts, which we have helped uh, supply by supporting Aaron and Mela, have softened the the hearts of this village. And this week, they allowed three of their children to get into an airplane with Aaron and fly off to a church camp to hear the gospel. God is working in that village, and we get to be part of it. So back to this. Hear the gospel, the message of the gospel, the word of truth, and we respond. How? By believing in it. And you've heard me say it a, a hundred times. It's not just a mental agreement. It's not just saying, yeah, I agree that Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead. No, it's it, believing. Saving faith is that two-sided coin of 
repentance, turning from trusting in yourself to turning to trusting in Christ alone for salvation. That's what is embedded in this when Paul says that you believed this after you heard it. And what happened when you believed this? He says that you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now we're 13 verses in. This is the first mention of God, the Holy Spirit. I said earlier that God, as revealed in the Bible, is a trinity, a triunity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet, we have heard multiple times, in fact, um, 21 times so far, the Father has been referenced either with the words God or Father or with the pronouns pointing back to Him, 21 times. The Son, Jesus, has been referenced 14 times, but this is the first time the reference of the Holy Spirit. What are we told the Holy Spirit does? He seals us. He is a guarantee of our future inheritance. The Spirit comes to live inside you when Jesus saves you, and He is a down payment, we would say, of the inheritance that is to come. Someday you're going to get the full inheritance in heaven. But for now, I say this tongue-in-cheek, you have to settle for God the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Think about the amazing privilege that that is. All of this, the section ends once again with the statement, to the praise of God's glory. As complicated as all these words and how they fit together, and how all of this flows in this poetic rhythm, which is harder to see in English than it is in the original language, but it, it focuses around this one big idea that this is all about God's glory. It's about you some, but it's ultimately about God and His glory. This whole story, this history, is His story. Every time you see the word history, I want you to see that in your mind. Break it into two. His story. It's all about him. Now, that may be a little offensive, a little uncomfortable to us, particularly the younger folks in the room. You, you guys have been specifically discipled by our culture and the you know, Disney movies and, and TV shows and everything. You have been discipled to believe that you are the hero of your story. All of us are tempted to believe that, but the youngest folks in this room you have been intentionally told that lie so many times, probably a million times in your life, that it's all about you, that you are the hero of your own story, that, that when, when the movie of your life is made, you are obviously the star and the hero. And, that, and Paul's saying that is not the case. As much as he loves you, as amazing as his grace is for you, as the, the, the way that he sacrificially gave his son to save you, as amazing as that is, your story is primarily about him. Is that a bummer? Is that offensive? I hope you can see that as freeing. Because if God is the God as he is described in the Bible, that everything comes from him and is sustained by him and is judged by him, and we are saved by him, by his choice, by his will, by his predestination of us, if all of that is true, in a sense, we can breathe a sigh of relief. It is not about us. It's about him. You don't have to be that amazing, impressive prince or princess that every Disney movie tells you to be because Jesus is that prince. You don't have to be the hero of your story because Jesus is that hero and you were never meant to be. I pray that we would forget some about ourselves, that we'd forget about our perceived choices of choosing him and believing in him and how great our will was in that. And instead, we would marvel at what Paul has clearly told us here is really God's choice and his way of glorifying himself. 
So here's the main idea. God has chosen to save us for his glory. Yes, we get amazing benefits from that. Just the fact that we get to be forgiven of our sins and spend eternity in heaven, much less to be adopted as a son of God, full inheritance, full love of God the Father. That is all amazing, but the bigger idea is that this is for his glory. I want that to sink in. I want that to be the frame through which you see the rest of the book of Ephesians. That your salvation is so much more about God's choice to adopt you than about your choice to respond to the gospel message. If you can get that into you, if you can allow that to shape your understanding, not only the book of Ephesians, but the whole Bible, to shape your outlook on life, to what job you're working in, what's going on with your family, how your heart was broken when you were 14, all of those things. If you can frame all of those within this idea of God being sovereign over everything, it'll change your life. It will change your life. So, I encourage you to read this passage again sometime today. I encourage you to, to see the patterns in there, to see the repeated things, especially this repeated idea of God's glory, the praise of God's glory. In a moment, we're going to share in communion. We're going to celebrate this amazing truth that Jesus has given himself to save us for his glory. We're going to have a, a moment of Reflection. We're going to have the, the band come up, and Hannah, I'm hoping you can pick some music for us. We will uh, silently reflect on what we've learned so far in Ephesians 1 and other things that God brings to mind as you look back on the sacrifice that Jesus has made for you. He tells us to do this in remembrance of him, so let us remember him over these next couple minutes, and let us marvel at the fact that he did this and that he gets the glory and the praise even when we get the benefits. Let's pray. Father, there's much in these 14 verses and uh, I feel like we've kind of scratched the surface of it today, that there's much more that we could do and dive into, but Lord, I pray that you would clearly cement in the hearts and the minds of this congregation this overarching truth that all of this, this story, this sacrifice, this salvation for us, that this is all first about you and your glory. Your grace, your mercy, they're lavished on us. They're poured out on us. You save us. You adopt us into your family. And as amazing as that is for us, it's still primarily about you. So draw our hearts to you, draw our minds to you as we share in communion, as we sing this last song about needing Christ and that he is all that we have, all that we can hope for. Would you work in us and, and cement this idea from Ephesians into our hearts and minds? In Jesus' name, amen.